want to ask you to go back with me to Ephesians chapter 4. In recent weeks, we've been looking at Christ's gifts to his church in regard to the churches being equipped for the work of ministry and being edified as the body of Christ. We're told here in this chapter that our ascended Lord has given gifts to his church in order to bring us all into spiritual maturity. Paul uses the phrase, a perfect man, in verse 13. And so far what we've seen are these offices of apostle, prophet, evangelist, and pastor, teacher, all share one thing in common, and that is, in some degree or another, they are all ministering the word of Christ unto, our, unto us. And in that sense, Christ is giving himself again to us as his church. This morning we're going to look at a phrase that we use in everyday language when we're conversing with one another. The phrase is speaking the truth in love. Something that we desperately need to know how to do increasingly. Something that may not come natural to us. Something that we definitely stand in need of the Spirit of God helping us to do. Paul encapsulates this entire paragraph, really the entire fourth chapter to this point, by saying that the goal is that the church, each member of the church, would reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. One of the preeminent ways that this is accomplished in the church is for the church to speak the truth in love. Hopefully what's going to come across this morning is that this is so much more than a phrase that we carry when we go into a counseling session with another believer. When someone comes to us seeking counsel or when we with great fear and trepidation go to them to be used of God to point out the speck that is in their eye after we have considered the plank or the beam that is in our own to speak the truth in love. But before we get to that in verse 15, I want to deal again with verse 14. Last week I just read it and made a few passing comments, but today I want to look at, look at it a little more fully. To do so, I want to go back and read verses 11 down through verse 16, just so we can see it all one more time as it fits together. Verse 11 says, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would accomplish these very things that we've read of this morning 
in our lives here, that you would build us up in the faith, that you would equip us, that you would edify us through the ministry of the word. We ask it under your praise and honor and in the name of your son and our savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Verses 14 and 15 give us first a negative and then a positive. So I want to look at the negative first, the negative being that we are no longer to be tossed to and fro like children, the positive being that we should grow up in all things into him who is the head, Jesus Christ. These two things are set in stark contrast to one another. To grow up into him who is the head, Jesus Christ, is the extreme opposite of what it means to be a child tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Perpetual spiritual immaturity, I believe, is what Paul has in mind when he is speaking about these spiritual infants who never reach an age of maturity or stability. When you look at it on the page, that we should no longer be children. There is a season in which, is, in which it is appropriate to be a spiritual child. Has nothing to do with your physical age. Has everything to do with the newness that surrounds being in Christ. And it is completely appropriate to be considered a babe in Jesus Christ. But just with the physical body, that age of infancy passes so quickly. We have two infants here with us this morning, thank the Lord. And this, this infancy, not long will we see these two baby carriers. These infants are going to grow. And they are going to begin to be more and more and more a part of their own family's life and the life of this church. As they grow, they are maturing. We take that same thought process and we place it into the realm of the spiritual person. There is a place and a time to be a spiritual infant. My prayer is that the Lord would birth another spiritual infant here this morning or perhaps even more. But from that point of being birthed in Christ into newness of life, in being a spiritual infant, the scriptures place an expectation just as we as physical beings have the expectation that children born to us are going to grow and make progress in the physical life, the spiritual is the same. We are to grow up into him who is the head, Jesus Christ, and to the measure and the stature of his fullness. This is our goal and the Lord has equipped us with gifts that he has given to ensure that this happens. But the negative example comes first. And it says that we no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. We are not to be a spiritual weather vane, so to speak, just blowing and pointing wherever the doctrinal winds are blowing at this point in time. There may be differences 
in these winds of doctrine. Some winds of doctrine that are blowing may be outright and obviously heretical. And quite frankly, those are the easiest ones for us to deal with. When we are students of the Word and we are studying the Scriptures, when we are presented with an outright heresy, something on par with Jesus Christ is not the Son of God, He is a God, or something along those lines, we immediately recognize that this is heretical and we shun it. But not all heresy is that way. Not all winds of doctrine blow that direction. It could be something along the lines of the prosperity gospel that appeals to the fleshly, worldly nature. The fleshly, worldly nature always wants to be healthy, always wants to be wealthy, always wants to live under the blessing of God. But yet we so often find in the Scriptures that we are to mortify those appetites of the flesh and then we are tempered by the realization that Jesus has told us that trouble is on the menu of every Christian in this life to some degree or another and seasons of trouble, trials, and difficulty are to be the norm for us. Some of these winds of doctrine blow according to even a pastor or a pastor teacher's what I call pet doctrines. And those pet doctrines may be good in and of themselves, but as that is the only thing that is stressed or looked into week after week, then it really draws us away from this being built up in the faith in Christ to reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ to be a perfect or mature man. You remember that Paul, when he was addressing the Ephesian elders, said that I am innocent of any of your blood being on my hands. The reason was because he is not shunned to declare to them the whole counsel of God. Paul didn't just have one or two pet doctrines that he taught over and over and over again. He taught the fullness of Christian doctrine, the apostles' doctrine, and he laid it down in that fashion so that even now we are looking into it this morning. But then there is another way that these strange winds of doctrine blow. And I want you to notice the words that are used. Trickery of men. Cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. I want you to key in with me on this word cunning. We've seen it before. It's definitive in the Scriptures. You go all the way back to the third chapter of Genesis, to the very first of that chapter before the fall of mankind, and we read, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field. Here is the danger. The word cunning can be translated or thought of along these lines. To be shrewd, sly, Subtle, crafty, prudent, all of those apply to the serpent in the garden, don't they? He was prudent, crafty, shrewd, sly, subtle, and this is the danger. This is why we need the ministry of the Word 
to help us endure these winds of doctrine that blow. Thinking about the cunning of Satan. You remember that all he did was introduce a question to Eve. He said, has God indeed said? Notice that he did not outrightly deny the existence of God. He agreed that there was a God in existence. And he knew that this God had spoken authoritatively. And that he has real expectations of his people. But yet, it is the introduction of deceit and slyness in taking the truth and just asking one question of it. And then using that to breed doubt in the heart and the mind of the one back in Genesis 3 that he was speaking with was what brought the downfall of humanity, what plunged mankind into sin and to death in sin. That's the deceit and the trickery, I believe, that Paul is speaking of here. How often did he warn the church that savage wolves were going to come but he would say to the church you're not going to recognize these savage wolves for what they are just by looking at their outward appearance because they're going to look like sheep they're going to talk like sheep they may even dress like sheep they may feel at home with sheep but inwardly they are ravenous wolves jude speaks of ones like this in the fourth verse when he says certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And then you might remember the way that he describes them. He says they appear as clouds without water. They look like the real thing, but they produce nothing. They are late autumn trees with no fruit. Again, they look the part, but there is nothing produced on the tree of themselves, nor the doctrine that they propagate. They are raging waves of the sea, and so on. Jude begins to describe these who have the appearance and the, the outward form, but yet inwardly are nothing more than the way Paul describes them here cunningly crafty, plotting deceitful things, using their trickery, all of it satanic in origin. These are the very things that Satan attempts to do with the truth of the living God, distort it in some way, turn it on its head if he can, but in some way deny and accuse those who are standing before the truth of God and to make them have some inkling of doubt in its veracity, in its infallibility, in its authority, and the expectation that we as believers are to submit to it. That's the negative. We are not to be like children, perpetually immature, and infants listening to all of these strange winds of doctrine that blow. Today is no different than the time in which Paul wrote, strange winds of doctrine blow all around us. 
we have to be discerning. We have to measure things we hear by the truth of the Scriptures. So that's the negative. No longer be children. The positive is grow up. Now, obviously, the word here has has the, the root of being edified, being built up. But just thinking about it in everyday language, don't be a child, grow up. Grow up into all things, into him who is the head, Christ. This is the expectation for every single Christian, is that you will reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ to a perfect man, that there would be spiritual maturity and ongoing growth in your life. Last week we, I said that there is no expectation in the Scriptures for what we would phrase early retirement. We cannot get outside of this expectation of growing in grace. But just as there was a means for perpetual infancy, and that means was the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting and the trickery of men, there are means for us as Christians to grow up into all things who is the head, Christ. The means that we are given in verse 15, which is the exact opposite of the speaking of deceit and the speaking of trickery and the speaking of deceitful plotting is the speaking of the truth in love. God help us to understand in this context what Paul means by speaking the truth in love. It's the exact opposite of verse 14. Now, there's some difficulty here with this phrase, speaking the truth in love. Every translation that I looked at used some variation of the words speaking and truth and love. All the way from the King James through the New American Standard, ESV, all the way to the NIV, everything uses some variation of this. The difficulty is that when you look at the verb in the original language, it says nothing about speaking at all. That's why some, some say the best way to understand this, though it's hard to communicate it in English, makes really no sense, we don't have a word like this, but truthing in love. And so the way to counteract perpetual immaturity, spiritual immaturity, the way to counteract deceit and the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of those that would teach something contrary to the truth is to truth in love. But the context really demands the addition of the word speaking because that's what this whole paragraph is about. Christ has gifted His church with prophets who spoke, apostles who spoke, evangelists who spoke, pastors and teachers who spoke, their words are counter, counteracted by those who are speaking deceit, who are speaking cunningly and craftily and deceitfully. So how do we counteract that? By speaking the truth in love. So that's the agreement between all of the major English translations that this is the right way to understand this, this phrase or this verb in verse 15. But notice 
the first word of the 15th verse. It's a word of contrast. It sets everything that follows in verse 15 against what preceded it in verse 14. And notice really the, sim- the simplicity of Paul's direction under the Spirit's guidance. How would you propose that the church fight against the cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting and the trickery of men? Paul's remedy is very simple. He says, speak the truth, or truth the truth, live the truth. In another place, he calls it the foolishness of preaching. And this is the primary means that God has given to build up his people in the faith, is through giving attention of the word. Paul again uses the phrase, the foolishness of preaching. What is the foolishness of preaching? It is a man of flesh with faults of his own, with the remaining sin nature of his own, standing and trumpeting words not his own. And this is what we should pray and and pray to God fervently would be prevailing in our culture again, the foolishness of preaching. Someone standing and declaring the truth of God, speaking the truth in love, and that this would supplant what takes place in so many places, the preaching of foolishness. You see the slight difference between the two. The foolishness of preaching is, is, a, is a man equipped and called of God, given some measure of gift to be able to expound the word and with all of his own faults, with all of his own sin nature, with all of these things, but yet under the blessing and the favor of God as opposed to the preaching of foolishness. And it is the preaching of foolishness that so permeates our self-indulgent, seeker-sensitive, spiritually toddler-producing church cultures. So simple is Paul's directive. Speak the truth and do so in love. I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this verse. He says, instead of being like weather vanes, turning around in every direction and believing everything that we hear, we are to, quote, hold to something particular and definite. Namely, the truth. So look at the phrase in verse 15. Speaking the truth. Can we agree that there is truth that is peculiar to biblical Christianity? That there is that body of truth that comprises and makes up Christian doctrine that should not be in flux, that should not be blowing this way and that way. There, is, there are doctrines that comprise the truth of which we are to speak. Where do we find such doctrines? 
We find them on the pages of Scripture from the beginning of Genesis all the way through the end of Revelation. We are told what the truth is, and then we are even so much told that we have a Savior who identifies himself as the truth, being himself the way, the truth, and the life. And if we are speaking the truth, if we are living the truth, then we are, in a sense, making Christ known at every turn. This is exactly what Jude writes about in the third verse, where he says, Beloved, I was diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, but I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. I suppose preachers in every generation have said this, that there is not a more vital verse in all the scripture that immediately applies to the day in which we live than the third verse of Jude that we contend earnestly for the faith which has been handed down to the saints once for all the truth of God does not undergo the process of change it does not evolve there is no evolution for the truth of God it is static it is set it is fixed it is determined it is peculiar and this is what we are to speak but notice when you combine these things together and really speaking the truth in love is this phrase means so much more than just verbalizing It encapsulates all of your life, everything. It means to hold the truth, maintain the truth, live the truth, and then certainly speak the truth. But the word that might bring it all together more than any others comes from Charles Hodge, and he says that we are to adhere to the truth in our speech, in our actions, in our thinking. We are to adhere to the truth, and this is the counter counteracting agent to the deceit, the cunning, the craftiness, the blowing winds of doctrine that perpetuate spiritual infancy. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he asks a question. And the question he's asking and and then answering, you have to to realize the, the time frame in which he lived and in which he preached. He fought so hard. If you read his biography, He fought so hard against the ecumenical movement of his day that sought to bring people of all types of faiths and confessions and some of them very sound, some of them outright heretical that was trying to bring all of them together. And he stood like a beacon against all of that. And just like Charles Spurgeon before him, Spurgeon attributes what he called the downgrade heresy to his death. He said, standing against the downslope or the downgrade of the churches around him, sliding down the slippery slope and falling prey to the cunning craftiness and the deceitful plotting of men cost him an early death. He died when he was 58 years old. But yet Lloyd-Jones, in in referring to this, this thinking that dogmatism over doctrine is unkind or unloving, 
Perhaps you've heard that. Perhaps you've thought that from time to time. To be too dogmatic about doctrine is just showing yourselves either to be unloving or unkind or at its worst, just being full of pride. But there are certain truths of Scripture that we must be dogmatic about, that we can't bend an inch on and remain true to the Scriptures and true to Christ at all. So here's the question that Lloyd-Jones asked. How can I judge various winds of doctrine that blow around me if I have no standard? If there is no baseline of doctrine, if there is no baseline of doctrine, then I have no standard with which to judge the strange winds that blow around me. And he goes on to make this statement, in far too many places, Christianity has become a vague, indefinite spirit of goodwill and philanthropy. You would think that Lloyd-Jones writing back in the 50s and 60s was writing about the day in which we live. Too often and in far too many places, Christianity has devolved into a vague, indefinite spirit of goodwill and philanthropy. Just love one another and all is going to be well. Well, then if that's the thinking, how am I to love you? How are we to love one another? If that's, if that's the mantra, let's just love each other and love Christ, then all will be well. Well, the Scriptures tell us how to love each other. If I love you, I'm not going to steal from you. I'm not going to covet what you have. I'm not going to lie to you. And if I love Christ, then this, I'm going to deal with you according to His commandments, the two great commandments, love God with everything that I have, and then my neighbor as myself, there has to be some real definite, definitive doctrine that guides us and governs us as Christians or else we lose our Christian distinctives. Do you realize that? Anyone can say just love, but what's the standard? What's the definition of love? That's why confessions and creeds are so valuable. But yet we live in a day and age and a time that shun confessions and creeds. No creed but the Bible has been you know, the, the cry of, of even Baptists for so long. Those who ascribe to being Bible-believing Christians, no creed but the Bible. Well, let me just give you one example, and I'll encourage you, go and look up this, this that I'm about to share with you and read it for yourself as Exhibit A. And I'm not trying to be mean-spirited at all. I was a Southern Baptist for the majority of my life. I read the Southern Baptist faith and message. I taught it. I adhered to it. But if you go and read the most current Baptist faith and message produced by the Southern Baptist, what you'll find it is it's so broad that anyone can fit underneath it. There are no real definitives of doctrine that cause you to, to go back to the Scriptures. It's so generic. It's so general. And that's on purpose. That's intentional. Because the, the cry is that doctrine is divisive. Let's not be too dogmatic on, on anything. Well, again, there are certain things that we have to be dogmatic on. Or lest we, we lose our Christianity altogether. Those of you who know the name Michael Horton, 
He's written several books. He has a podcast that's called The White Horse Inn. And he says repeatedly, know what you believe and why you believe it. Know what you believe. Why do you believe what you believe? Those are the things that we need to bring to our understanding of Scripture. To speak the truth in love necessarily means that we have a standard by which we are measuring the strange winds of doctrine, but yet we have to take the whole phrase. It's not just speak the truth, and it's not just love. It's both. Truth and love are never mutually exclusive. Where one is, you should find the other. Listen to John Stott. He says, truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love. But then on the other hand, love becomes soft if it is not strengthened by the truth. You have to have both. They are never mutually exclusive. Perhaps you have been battered and beaten by someone that has spoken the truth to you. And they have been so abusive with their words and turned away from that conversation consoling themselves with the fact that they have spoke the truth with you. Or God forbid, you or I have been that person who have consoled ourselves after leaving a conversation by, well, I spoke the truth. I made known what the truth was. But yet that conversation was totally devoid of love. And here the word is the familiar, agape, self-sacrificing, self-giving love. The two come together. The people who are going to hear what you have to say are people who know, first of all, that you love them that you are concerned for them. If all you bring to the conversation or to the table is truth, then you've left out the most vital thing, love. But I can say it on the other hand. If all you have brought to the table is love, then you've left out the most vital thing, which is truth. And that may sound counteractive, but it really stresses the fact that they always go together. You have to have them both. And again, this is so much more than just our speaking. It may be the primary way that we apply this means that Paul says here is a means to spiritual growth. It is through the verbalization of the truth, but it encapsulates your whole life. That's why I like Charles Hodge's word, adhering to the truth. And you know through experience, most likely... It's hard to take correction or even praise from someone whose life does not match what's coming out of their mouth. It's hard to be critiqued. It's hard to be admonished. It's difficult to be rebuked by someone whose life does not match the words that they are using to accomplish those tasks. Again, John Stott, truth becomes hard when not tempered by love. Love becomes soft when not strengthened by truth. 
How do we counteract the winds of doctrine that blow that make perpetual spiritual infants? By adhering to the truth. By speaking the truth. John MacArthur helps us here. He says, this seems to be so deceptively easy to speak the truth. Seems to be so deceptively easy just to show up, speak the truth, in love. But in thinking about what he says, I tried to take his thought a little farther. To speak the truth in love means more than dropping a truth bomb in a conversation. It is persevering in the truth, adhering to the truth, knowing the truth, believing the truth, and then living in light of that truth and then making it known to others. And when you see it in that light, then we understand why he says it is deceptively easy because speaking the truth in love is one of the most difficult things that any Christian will ever do in an, on an ongoing basis. When we understand it means more than just the words coming out of our mouth. It's our whole mindset. It's the whole context in which we are speaking. It involves everything. Our lives must match it. We must know the truth to be able to speak it. We must adhere to it ourselves, but then we must be willing to actually speak what the Lord has taught us. And notice that in the end of verse 15, But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. What is the primary means of growing up into him in all things who is the head, even Christ? What's the primary means? Speaking the truth in love. It's hard for me to preach a sermon without at least giving you one quote from Curtis Vaughn. And by way of application, Curtis Vaughn says, persons who lack spiritual stability, whether they live in the first or 21st century, are always easy prey for peddlers of religious fads and heresies. They have just enough Christian intelligence to unsettle them and make them the prey of every idle suggestion the sport of every religious novelty. We live in a day of religious sport and religious novelty. As sad as it may be to say it, but we can say it in reality. Religious sport and novelty seem to be the norm What are we to do? Speak the truth in love? But what does that mean? It means that you adhere to truth in every area of your life. And then as opportunity arises for it to come out of you, you let it come out. We're not to be battering rams of the truth, to go down and, and tear down everyone that we come in contact with. 
And we're not to, to be so mushy and sloppy in love that we have nothing substantial to say. We need the balance of what Paul says. And if you want to see an example, look at him. Look at his life. There is another place in the New Testament where this word that is translated, this verb, speaking the truth in love, is used. And it's in Galatians chapter 4, I think maybe verse 6. And I'll paraphrase that. You'll remember, Paul had a lot of what we might think to be harsh things to say to the Galatians. But he had very good grounds on which to say them because they were this close to falling from grace. You remember? They were being infiltrated by those who had crept in on their bellies and the trickery of men. The winds of doctrine were blowing in the Galatian churches. The cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting was everywhere. And Paul then writes this letter. He comes to them and he writes very strongly to them. But everywhere, that we, everywhere we see, we understand that he's doing so because of his great love and concern for them. He asked them a question. Have I then become your enemy because I've told you the truth? Have I become your enemy because I have told you the truth? I think it was Robert Murray McShane who these words are original to. You'll hear them quoted often and attributed to various people, but I, I think he may be the originator. That person that loves you the most is the one that tells you the most truth. That person that loves you the most is the one who will speak the truth the most to you and do it in love. Children, listen to me. God in His infinite wisdom has given you parents who love you. And they may often speak things to you that you might not want to hear. They're fulfilling the biblical command to speak the truth to you in love. Christian of any age, male or female, the Lord may have placed around you a person or people who are willing to speak the truth to you in love. You know what you can most often assume? They love you. They have your best interests at heart. And anyone who embodies this spirit of speaking the truth in love has not done so without great preparation through prayer, seeking themselves first. To speak the truth in love is something that doesn't just happen off the cuff especially in this realm in which we most often apply it, of correction. I think that's the way we most often apply what Paul says here, when, when there is correction to either be received or given. Certainly it includes that sphere of life, but it is so much more than that. If you have someone in your life that will speak the truth to you in love, thank God for them. 
Not everyone is willing. Not everyone knows the truth to speak. But if you have that person, recognize them to be what what Paul calls them here in this fourth chapter. And he gave some. They are Christ's gifts to his church. To promote maturity to the growing up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. So God help us to speak the truth in love. Father, we thank you for these words. We ask, Lord, that you give us a real understanding of them. Keep us from pride and arrogance and so many of these things that try to sneak in whether we are on the speaking end or the receiving end. Lord, and we give you thanks for this means that you have given to protect us from the strange winds of doctrine that are not according to Christ, that will not produce maturity in us, that will never lead us into the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. Father, our desire, when we, when we have a sober moment, our desire is to no longer be children tossed to and fro. We desire to grow up into all things, into, the, into Him who is the head, Jesus Christ. Help us to not shy away from the truth. Help us to contend earnestly for it. Help us to, at every turn in life and with all of our being to adhere to the truth and to be useful to one another on this journey of sanctification and spiritual maturity even to the conformity of Jesus Christ. Father, protect us from the trickery of men, the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, Help us to no longer be children tossed to and fro. Grow us up in Christ. Cause us to look more and more like Him. Cause our words and our actions to reflect more and more of Him. Perfect the image of Christ in your body. Lord, help us at every turn to edify ourselves in love. We know it's an impossibility without the help of the Spirit. So we pray and ask, let it not be true of us that we have not because we ask not. We ask you, Lord, to give us increasingly the ability from a right motive from a heart that is in right standing with you and our fellow men, give us increasingly the ability to speak the truth in love. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.